0: As Russia's campaign in Ukraine does badly on the ground, it is raising alarm bells thanks to its manoeuvres in space. China and now North Korea battle with Covid as the WHO upends a lot of cherished misconceptions about the pandemic. The Democrats put a radical abortion bill to the Senate so that its glorious defeat can motivate the base. And the BBC gets caught mistaking campaigning for journalism when it comes to climate change. And in this week's short thought... I focus on the big moves to ratchet up online censorship. My name's Malin Baker. This is The Malin Baker Show. The consequences of war in Ukraine continue to ripple out through the geopolitical landscape. Finland has confirmed its intent to join NATO, a move that will accomplish what President Putin said he was fighting in Ukraine to avoid namely, NATO countries directly on the Russian border. The debate in Sweden is not so certain but nevertheless this week saw Boris Johnson rowing with the Swedish Prime Minister Magdalena Andersson all apparently so that he could announce that Britain and Sweden were in the same boat. His typically colourful way of stating that Britain committed to coming to Sweden's defence were it to be attacked by Russia. I think most people believe Sweden being attacked by Russia is a relatively unlikely development, so whether that promise would hold up if it actually did come to pass is an open question. In the short term, we should probably be thankful that the Prime Minister Anderson didn't end up having to swim for her life, Boris Johnson not being highly known for his competence in many practical areas. It's noticeable that she wore a life jacket. And he didn't. The media was full of commentators celebrating the new entry to NATO and mocking Putin for having achieved the opposite of what he'd wanted. It apparently didn't occur to them that mockery of that sort might likewise have the opposite consequences to those that they would wish. US intelligence has said that its information is that Putin is digging in for a long conflict with no signs of flagging resolve on his part, still very much with the intent to gain territory beyond just the Donbass region. They stated their concern again that should there be zero progress, as seems possible with the current balance of forces, His refusal to accept failure will lead him to escalate in unpredictable ways. And of course the talk very quickly turns to the potential use of tactical nuclear weapons in that scenario. US Director of National Intelligence Avril Haines told the US Senate Armed Services Committee that Putin could well conclude that losing the war would constitute the sort of existential threat that would lead him to cross that red line. Predictions by some analysts that Putin would use the Victory Day parade this week to announce the conflict had become a wider war which would enable him to mobilise more forces, that did not happen. Which doesn't mean that such a move couldn't become forthcoming, given the reported battlefield stalemate right now. It seems likely that at some point it has to happen. What also can't be ruled out is that Moscow is preparing for the eventuality that NATO enters into the conflict and Russia will be looking to strike powerfully at its current complacent assumption that it would quickly establish dominance. The head of the US Space Command, General James Dickinson, warned that Moscow's observed behaviour in space is becoming increasingly hostile. Noting that the on-ground jamming of GPS signals has been a routine part of the Ukraine conflict, Russian satellites have been reportedly continually making close approaches to other satellites. Whether this activity is to spy on those satellites or as a practice run for a future conflict scenario is unclear. This is in the week where it was confirmed that Russia was behind a cyber attack of the Viasat communication satellite hours before the invasion of Ukraine. The hack was intended to target the Ukrainian military, but also affected thousands of internet users in Germany. It's a reminder about how the apparently solid stability of current life could easily be disrupted by strategically directed attacks – In the Blackett review 10 years ago, it was noted that a large-scale GPS failure, if it happened for whatever reason, would cause damage worth £1 billion per day to the UK economy and would have a disastrous effect on many of the things citizens have come to rely on. Add to that the fact that Russian submarines have reportedly been scoping out the locations of ocean floor major internet cables to the UK, And you can see how there will be a plan in Moscow for how, without even dropping bombs on territory, they could inflict major damage on the West should it come to a wider conflict. So it shouldn't be a surprise that the Ministry of Defence in the UK is under pressure to improve its ability to keep up with the global arms race. In recent decades, the Ministry of Defence has become a watchword for wasteful spending, with huge cost overruns on technology that seems, shall we say, less than cutting edge, like the new tanks that are so noisy that they make the occupants ill. MPs also noted that Britain has not developed or deployed hypersonic weapons, unlike Russia and China, with the US working actively on catching them up. Another indicator of that fragility came this week when Ukraine blocked part of the flow of gas to Europe across its territory, arguing that Russian troops were raiding it from territory that they control to supply separatist forces. No evidence was provided for that and while it's certainly highly possible so also is that the move might be an expression of political frustration by Ukraine at the EU's slow pace in reducing its reliance on Russian fossil fuels and therefore continuing to fund Moscow. The gas flow to the EU was consequently reduced by about a quarter and that sent gas prices soaring across mainland Europe. Of course, another reason why gas prices have been high has been the fallout from Covid lockdowns worldwide. Recently, the World Health Organisation published a report that aimed to give more realistic estimates of the figures of Covid-19 deaths two years after the pandemic first struck, It recognised that it's basically impossible to get accurate data because many countries attributed deaths to Covid with very different criteria. Some major countries clearly failed to report accurately at all for various political or competence reasons. So they've taken a blend of looking at excess deaths figures and modelling other factors onto countries where no data was available to come up with an interesting set of estimates. Mostly, it got headlines where it either confirmed or contradicted what people had previously believed or wanted to believe. So a number of people looked at the figures and pulled out that on this scoring, Sweden had done relatively well, vindicating the approach of their head epidemiologist Anders Tegnell. Others pointed out that although the UK was constantly told by its own media, internal and external critics that it was doing particularly badly compared to, say, Germany, actually it was squarely in the middle. Indeed many commentators have suggested that from these WHO figures the UK did even better than Germany. Germany was estimated as having 116 deaths per 100,000 people, the UK slightly lower at 109. Well beware writers and journalists bearing wishful thinking and statistical illiteracy. If you look at the detail the UK estimate has a range from 98 to 121 quite a wide range. Germany has a range of 96 to 137, an even wider range that completely includes the UK range. So no, you can't come to a fine-tuned granular conclusion based on those figures. Broadly the same is the best you're going to get from that. But really more important than the exact hierarchy of bad and worse were the various factors that didn't seem to make a lot of difference. There is no discernible pattern relating to the stringency of public policy measures taken. Intuitively, people felt that lockdowns must help. Some countries got very detailed and micromanagey about it from day to day of what could be done. Well, from these figures, that made little difference except for countries that were able to achieve a high degree of isolation before rolling out vaccinations. So New Zealand and Australia, obviously, pretty much everyone else was penetrated to the same degree as everyone else. All countries saw some shift in population behaviour, mostly voluntary in Sweden, mandated in Britain. The added degree of presumed rigour from the latter didn't add a lot to the broader mix. What did a lot of the damage in the UK? was the relentless rule-changing, the stop-start approach with minimal notice, destroying businesses and livelihoods in a way that does not now seem to have served any useful purpose whatsoever. And now the micromanaging of those details has come back to bite the politicians who supported them, as they get shown to have failed to follow the exact details of themselves. Now, if they'd supported a more flexible approach, with people encouraged to use common sense and judgment against a set of recommendations, of course, they would have had nothing to apologise for. Meanwhile, though for the West people are now treating the pandemic as being over, it remains a growing and future prospect for China, which has tightened the inexorable lockdown grip on Shanghai and its 25 million people, and it's tightening measures further also in Beijing. Even the WHO this week told China that its holding to a zero-Covid policy was unsustainable and calling it for a policy shift. That is not politically welcome, of course, since Xi Jinping has placed his personal authority on the strategy. China's foreign ministry told the WHO to mind its own business, calling its remarks irresponsible. And he pointed to a peer-reviewed study published this week in the journal Nature Medicine, which suggested that lifting the policy could lead to more than 112 million symptomatic cases of COVID-19 and 1.55 million deaths. It's worth noting that although that article was published this week, it was received by the journal back in early March, before the evidence of the growing failure of the policy was anything like as strong as it is today. And it's not just China grappling with the inevitability of failure in policy terms, but this week we also saw the first confirmation that North Korea is similarly afflicted. Up until this week, it had always maintained that it had zero COVID cases, and even while it showed signs of a degree of moral panic under the surface, along with observed partial lockdowns that rather suggested that might not be wholly the truth, well, this week it was confirmed by State Control TV that some 18,000 people had been identified with fever and 187,000 were being isolated and treated. Apparently 350,000 people have developed a fever since late April of whom 162,000 are now recovered. Countrywide lockdowns have been imposed, although the country can't replicate the sort of intensive testing that China used to make its policy temporarily effective. So with very little vaccination at all, North Korea is effectively in a let it rip state. But in case you were worried, you can relax about one thing. The pandemic spread did not stop them from carrying out more missile tests. I know, few, right? If Trump had still been on Twitter, he'd have been calling Kim Jong-un Rocket Man. And maybe that moment isn't so far away. Elon Musk announced earlier in the week that Donald Trump would certainly be allowed back onto Twitter should he take over. Which wasn't really an unexpected announcement, given all that had been said over the last few weeks, but it got some at least into an apocalyptic state of mind nonetheless. And then, just to underline what a seesaw world you live in when you put Elon Musk into the forefront, he closed the week by putting his acquisition of Twitter on hold. He suggested that he had been told that fake and spam accounts made up only less than 5% of all users on Twitter, and his slamming on of the break suggested that he had seen possibly some additional information casting that into doubt. Although he was facing a lot of pushback and legal scrutiny for the takeover, so how much for stated reason is the real reason? Again, not really certain. The news sent Twitter's shares plunging by 25% and it came after Twitter had confirmed the departure of two of its top executives. Now one of the topics that has been highly visible on Twitter itself, of course, has been abortion. The political fighting over the potential overthrow of Roe v Wade continued this week and really showed how polarised the issue becomes once you've party politicised it. So, for instance, the House Democrats brought an abortion bill to, they said, seek to codify Roe v Wade in legislation. Except that's not what it did. Rather than speaking to the majority of Americans who support some access to abortion, but some restrictions as well, they went straight to the extreme with a bill that granted the right to an abortion at any point in a nine-month term, which is a massively radical position. People talk about how the abortion question is largely settled across Europe. I know of no European countries that have an approach anything like that radical. France currently allows abortions in the first trimester, 12 weeks, which is a tighter restriction than that put forward by the Texas law for 15 weeks. Delicate moral debates arguably come grotesque if you're talking about aborting a baby, because whatever lines you think there is between a fetus and a baby, it's certainly been long crossed by the time you get to eight months pregnant. So why did it make sense for Democrats to go for that version of the bill? meaning that now all of their representatives, say for Joe Manchin, have put themselves on the record as supporting something so radical and out of step with the rest of the world and most of their voters. As it was, they ensured the bill didn't even get a simple majority, with Joe Manchin and abortion-supporting Conservatives Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski voting against. This week has been seeing numerous protests that have been targeting the homes of the Supreme Court justices. Pro-life campaigners who are happy to protest outside abortion clinics and the homes of clinicians protested that this was intimidation and out of order. Meanwhile, right-to-choose campaigners who would object to protests outside abortion clinics and the homes of clinicians defended it as entirely justified. And this is where the activists end up arguing for the most extreme form of their preference, a total ban on abortion versus abortion up to the day of birth and freely getting in the face of anyone on the other side all while expressing the view that their opinion has the support of a majority, when in actual fact the majority thinks that they should be the same sort of dignified, serious-minded and restrained approach that applies in much of the rest of the world. They would generally hold that all people should have a right to privacy when it comes to their and their family homes. The political radicals always believe their positions to be more popular and vote-winning than the evidence supports. So the New York Times reported that the likely Roe v Wade overturn has energised the left of the party, which had recently been divided and flagging. There's now a big push to ensure that strongly pro-life candidates should be selected in primaries to make this a key factor in the election battles to come. Republicans in Congress have been restrained on the topic, advising candidates to respond to Democrats' radicalism by being the voice of moderation, keen to avoid potential backlash and to be seen as appealing as much as possible to that centre ground. They have to deal with the fact that although the reality of that recent bill was that it was hugely radical, most of the mainstream media went along with simply suggesting it was a codification of Roe v. Wade, a reminder of how they will sometimes morph into party campaign mode, particularly when elections are pending. And speaking of which, I've occasionally done stories on here about how the BBC often wanders over the line from being a reporter on the issue of climate change to being a campaigner. Why is it a bad idea when journalists cross that line? Because being a campaigner for an issue brings a high probability that your objectivity and balance is compromised. Well, we were back drinking about that well again this week when the BBC's Complaints Unit reported that the BBC's climate editor, Justin Rowlett, had made false or misleading claims in his Panorama documentary, Wild Weather. Specifically, Rowlett wrongly stated that the number of weather-related deaths is increasing. He said this Our weather is getting ever more unpredictable and dangerous. The death toll is rising around the world, and the forecast is worse to come. Could have come straight from an Extinction Rebellion pamphlet, but it wasn't true. The ECU said this in its ruling. In fact, as noted in a recent report from the World Meteorological Organization, despite the number of weather-related disasters such as floods, storms and drought growing significantly in the past 50 years, the number of deaths caused by such disasters has fallen because of improved early warnings and disaster management. Rolat's documentary also claimed, without any sort of qualification whatsoever, that Madagascar was close to the world's first climate-induced famine. But while climate may well be a factor in Madagascar, there are a number of additional factors that have added to the shortage of food. Rolas has form on this because he's also been judged five months previously to have given an inaccurate impression of wind farm subsidies. He'd reported that the offshore wind industry was now virtually subsidy free which is true of recently approved projects but in no way true about existing projects so cannot be attributed to the industry more widely in the way that he did. And some eyebrows were raised when he interviewed Boris Johnson on the eve of COP26, and arguably veered it somewhat off the journalistic tack into one of lecturing and hectoring. You're going to China, you're going to India, you're going to the developing world saying phase out coal at the same time as not ruling out... A new coal mine in Britain! A new coal mine in Britain! We started the Industrial Revolution, we should have closed the I've just the given mind. you the statistics before you have ah, But why don't you, you just say... We're, gonna, we're not we're going to we'll open the... I've just, just given you statistics. Why don't we be clear on the we, coal we have, mine? You know, it makes you look... No, I, 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 I... It makes you look a little bit weaselly not answering the coal question because they're going to go in your... T- he was accused of being aggressive in that interview but on that occasion was defended by the BBC. We consider that it was entirely appropriate for Justin to challenge the Prime Minister on these points as there has been criticism of the failure to increase tax on short-haul flights and for the opening of a new coal mine. It did not comment on whether the BBC journalistic challenging should generally include calling the interviewee weaselly to his face. At least Raulat admitted he had felt uncomfortable when the clip started circulating and he'd said this... It was only when I felt he was being evasive on the Cumbrian mine issue that I became a bit more insistent. I don't know where the weasel word came from. As a rule, I don't think finger-jabbing accusatory interviews generate the most interesting results. No, indeed. The Times of London newspaper reported anonymous sources at the BBC who frankly condemned the latest incidents. The Justin Rollat stuff is grim. These are not mistakes. He's a campaigner, once said. And the paper continued. Another person said, despite the ruling against Rollat, campaign-like reporting had become more permissible at the BBC amid the climate emergency. And indeed, when I've discussed this before, it was related to Rolat's colleague, environmental reporter Roger Harabin, who has a habit of getting his friends in environmental campaign groups to give him quotes on an issue he wants to talk about and then turning it into a story, whereas really it's thinly disguised editorial. These are all reasons why I always go on about why it's a bad thing that all the official channels of communication from government and mainstream media increasingly stopped communicating information and increasingly started campaigning. This is exactly why the fact that campaigning communications will focus only on those aspects that are judged to be likely to increase people's motivations to change themselves in the ways that you want them to. But it raises the incentives for the journalists to cherry-pick information and even in this case to tell straight-out untruths. That then is an open goal for the people on the other side who actually do all those things themselves, but whose unreliability of narrators you've just obscured by being unreliable yourself. Leaving those of us who just want to know the truth throw up their hands and wonder who on earth is left. That they can trust. One of the regular themes that I talk about on this channel is how the changing modern world is putting us into this pivotal moment where we'll consider how far we will lurch towards technocracy in response to widespread challenges. And a big one that comes up again and again unsurprisingly is that of disinformation, misinformation and censorship. Hostile states do use disruptive propaganda to destabilise our societies. It's well documented, so we have to take this seriously. But governments have always been attracted by mechanisms to censor their opponents. So drawing lines is something they find hard to do. We should be intensely vigilant over. There is no general agreement on what constitutes harmful fake information which means that there's plenty of scope for negative consequences in trying to combat it. But governments have always been attracted by mechanisms to censor their opponents. So drawing lines is something they find hard to do and we should be intensely vigilant over. There is no general agreement on what constitutes harmful fake information, which means there's plenty of scope for negative consequences in trying to combat it. So in the UK... The online safety bill is going through Parliament, says it's targeting things that we would agree are bad, like promotional terrorist videos, images promoting child abuse. But it uses a loose definition, material risk of significant harms. Bearing in mind the woke workplace revolution when young people swear that publishing JK Rowling makes them feel unsafe, you should appreciate the need for less lazy definitions. Whereas in the US, the Biden administration set up a disinformation governance board, which seems highly likely to blur the lines between security threats by foreign actors and political opposition. Case in point, the person chosen to lead it, Nika Jankovic, is on record as having dismissed the Hunter Biden laptop story as Russian disinformation, so handily turning it into the sort of thing that should be suppressed, which indeed, at the time, it was by the majority of the mainstream media, whilst now being acknowledged by some of the same to have been entirely true. Unsurprisingly that does not inspire confidence in this as a process and while officials have insisted that they've been misunderstood and in no circumstances would this body be monitoring US citizens the concentrating element is the blurring of the line where someone gets to decide what's harmful and what's truthful beyond what's just legal. Which is the fault line in the UK online harms bill as well. Legal but harmful is framed as a category of content that social media companies should proactively remove. Well, what does that cover? I mean, who knows for sure? And that sort of strategic ambiguity is probably going to mean that companies massively overreach because the penalties in the bill are potentially huge if they are deemed not to have done enough. So they will play to be safe. And then, lo and behold, without ever categorising what is to be censored in a way that's explicit and therefore can be attacked, you have nevertheless achieved censorship of a range of discussions that will turn out to have been completely valid and important. The bill is widely believed to be unstoppable in its progress through Parliament. The Free Speech Union is trying to get it amended to deal with the most egregious elements with the likely unintended consequences. But you shouldn't expect this discussion is going to go away anytime soon. In the same way that the creation of so called non crime hate incidents led to isolated incidents of police interviewing people and cautioning them because of tweets they made on issues like transgenderism. So it will be here. And bit by bit, what is taken for granted as being unsayable will just be extended. A little nudge at a time. To date, nothing has been unsayable on this channel. We will see how much that changes in the coming year. Now, some of you may have noticed that for the last couple of Fridays, I've been doing four items of news of broadly similar lengths, plus the short thought for this end of the week roundup. And also for these last couple of weeks, I've been producing all of those items as separate, shorter standalone videos on the Clips channel. So if you prefer to get your videos in short form, you might want to make sure that you also subscribe to that. The week stories are grouped onto a playlist specifically for that day, so it should be easy to navigate. Next week, there will not be videos on Monday and Wednesday. I need to get a number of things done that will help to pay some bills. One day, hopefully, The channel will grow to the point where such things won't be necessary. But not there yet. And that is, of course, the perfect segue to go on to thank the good people who support this channel on Patreon, who make this channel possible at all, and who help to bring that day of freedom just a bit closer. I really could not do this without them. If you would like to add your support... For the independent, fact focused, and non ideological content that I aim to produce here, please head on over to patreon.com forward slash It is always appreciated. Either way, have a great week. My name is Malin Baker. This is the Malin Baker Show. Thanks for watching this video. If you liked it, please share it with anyone else you think would also enjoy it. Word of mouth is really important to us. And if you've not subscribed yet, what are you waiting for? As the saying goes, that subscribe button won't smash itself.